to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. All right, Glenn, to start us off today, I'm actually going to need your help, right? I'm going to need you to to start off the the dad joke for me. So I'm going to first need you to say, what do we want? And then when do we want it? So, but I'll, I'll kind of come in after each one of those lines. All so right. Go on, start, start me off, please. All right. What do we want? Low-flying aircraft noises. When do we want it? Meow. <laughs> All right. That's pretty bad. Well, I got a chuckle. I got a chuckle. Okay. That's good. That's good. I don't know that mine's going to be any better. <laughs> I don't expect so, but All I think right. that's the point. Uh, Go ahead. ahead. Uh, So a friend of mine got a new job doing marketing at a big cereal company. Oh, okay. Yeah, he said his job is actually raising brand awareness. I like it. Raising brand awareness. I can't wait to to tell my my girls here and watch their eyeballs roll back into their head. Oh, yeah. I don't know why that brings such joy, but it does. Yeah, I I, totally know that feeling. All right. Well, uh, we've got a, a, a big episode here today, um, and uh, it, it's geez, I think we've been kicking around this for a little while now, but it just kind of came. We're just waiting to gather enough information to talk about this case, uh, right? Like, yes, we've been how long? Have we it must be a few years now that we've been talking about this, right? That's exactly right. I mean, over the last few years. I, probably once every six months or so, somebody would email or ask me. I'd be talking to someone at a conference. They go, "Hey, are you ever going to do such and such case?" And I, I almost always responded with, "You know, I've actually never seen the prints in that case. I really don't know a lot about it, other than what I read in the news. And I'm not quite sure where we find out more info about it. But you're right. We should do that case." I'm not sure why we're being coy here because uh, everyone clicking on the play button has already seen the <laughs> the case that we're going to be talking yeah, about. That's a good point. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's it's uh, we're going to be tackling the uh, Stephen Cowan's case. Now um, I've been saying it wrong. I'm sure you know, other listeners out there have been saying it wrong for years, uh, saying the Stephen Cowan's case. Uh, but after uh, watching a documentary episode with. Uh, Mr. Cowan's family, just referring to him as Stefan throughout the entire uh, show, you know, pretty set that that uh, that his name is pronounced Stefan Cowan's. Uh, yes. So that's the first little bit of trivia to get out there to uh, everyone listening. Yes. And, you know, this was a case, I remember the first time I heard about it, because it was the first case that we knew of that had gone through the Innocence Project that had had an erroneous identification Mm-hmm. And the individual, Mr. Collins, had been convicted on, well, as part of several things, but part of the evidence was an identification, a fingerprint identification, which ends up being erroneous. Uh, but it, in an interesting twist, it's not that the erroneous identification is discovered right away by another examiner, it's DNA that sort of points to a new individual, and as they're going through their DNA exonerations, he ends up being exonerated. That's how it flew on my radar, uh, just because I I was following Innocence Project stuff, and then it started to come out uh, maybe a year or so later in our community, more of the the details, but 
I only knew it as one of the first cases that had gone through an Innocence Project. And I believe Simon Cole had also written about it in one of his papers, More Than Zero, which was back in 2005, I want to say he wrote that. Right, right. And, I mean, this, you know, the time frame here overlaps a lot with the Mayfield case. Uh, yes, so yes. A lot of stuff going on. But we'll, we'll get to that. That's kind of at the end of the story, but we'll, we'll get to that eventually. Uh, so to start off, I uh, want to kind of quote our sources here, uh, digging around on stuff online, and and then also talking to some uh, you know some folks that um, well first uh, Hillary Deleuze who we had on as a guest here recently, uh, you know, she had some material from some presentations that she's given recently, including the print images, uh, and then also in her t- testimony book when we talked about uh, you know she's got information about this case in that. Uh, also, and her presentation that she's given on this case and others uh, beyond Mayfield is uh, in the uh, the onin.com uh, fingerprint website. There's some articles from the Boston Phoenix, uh, thephoenix.com, the uh, University of Michigan exoneration page uh, has a lot of detail about this case. And then uh, a lot of detail, including some of the reports coming from uh, convictingtheinnocent.com, which is uh, run by Duke, I believe. Yeah. And and I'll I'll give you a little bit of uh, cred, too. I I doubt listeners will realize just how much research you did on this, Eric. And you were very helpful in finding a lot of documents. You, You did a lot of digging. And there's a lot of different resources. But there were publicly available stuff, but you still had to dig for it and found quite a few things. Yeah, it's, it, it did involve quite a bit of digging over the past couple weekends. Oh, and one other thing I forgot, there was a uh, Innocence Project kind of documentary TV show episode about this case uh, and you know, found that on Vimeo. So if you want to see some more detail uh, about this, you know, talking to the people involved in the case, uh, I'd say just search for Stephen Cowan's Vimeo and uh, should pop up as well. All right, uh, Glenn, we ready to jump into it? Yeah, I, I think so. And again, you know, as we go into this, like we did with our Mayfield series, I have the same feeling with this. You know, why why unearth the past? Why go digging around the past on an old case where, yeah, okay, someone made a mistake, but there aren't that many yeah. out there in the field? Well, I think it is important to understand cases like this. I think there are still things to learn from it. And I know when I went through the documents, not to probably the same extent you did, Eric. I mean, you really went through this with a fine-tooth comb. There were many little things that went, yep, that makes sense. Yes, that makes sense. Yes, we know that those kinds of things contribute to error. And it's a very good example of things that you and I have talked about in other episodes that we know are still going on today. And that's what makes it so frustrating is the the kinds of behavior that happen in this case can still happen today and may happen in a neighborhood agency near you. Yeah, you know, it's it's exploring it's exploring the, the causes that led to the issue so that the rest of the community can learn from that mistake and and avoid it in the future. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's that's the value of it. And to to find the instances where, uh, you know, people, uh, you know, as things continued on and and um, this case was brought back uh, to trial, more evidence was what it was presented. 
there were some things that were done right in that process. And I think it's also worth calling out the instances of, you know, the examiners and the, uh, the departments and all the, the people that were involved that did the right thing uh, at certain points in this whole process to recognize that as well. So again, that, that, that can continue on. And when, when someone does the right thing that they can be acknowledged for that. And, uh, and we can learn from that part of this too. All right. So, um, let's jump back to May 30th, 1997. Uh, let's see, I'm, I'm in college. Uh, <laughs> I, I, boy, I think I've, at this time I'm working at the video store. Um, you know, kids ask your parents if, if you need to, an explanation for, uh, of, uh, of that. And I can tell you that I was gearing up because I used to work in the movie theater for the big summer of Batman and Robin with Arnold Schwarzenegger. And, oh, my goodness. And Top the, billing, Arnold Schwarzenegger. And George Clooney and all those guys. See, see, I don't mind the puns, the dad jokes when I do them, but in that movie, the, the ice puns were... Uh, anyway, um, intolerable. Yes. May yes, okay. 1997. Uh, so in uh, Boston's Jamaica Plain neighborhood, uh, Sergeant Gregory Gallagher sees an African-American male, quote, lurking suspiciously on a sidewalk. I'm not sure what that means, but he called the uh, the guy over to question him, and the man starts kind of sidling away and then breaks off into a sprint. Sergeant Gallagher chases afterward after him and eventually catches up to him in a backyard. Uh, I'd always pictured it in my head as like on a street, right? But uh, um, it turns out it's in, in just someone's backyard. And in the kind of struggle, the uh, the, the subject pulls out uh, Sergeant Gallagher's gun from his holster, and Gallagher tries to run away after he sees that this guy's got his gun. Jump tries to jump one over a fence and gets shot. Uh, evidently the guy fires like a dozen shots. Uh, two of them hit uh, Sergeant, uh, one in the back and one in the butt, and then he takes off. Uh, a man named Benjamin Petre, I'm not sure how to pronounce that one, was standing in the bedroom window, second floor, looking down on this, and the, the subject turns up, fires one shot at him, but misses, and uh, then takes off. And there was a baseball cap that's left behind here in the backyard. Yeah. So now he he's off running away from that that location, goes to a second location into a house uh, of a woman named Bonnie Lacey. Uh, she is pregnant, has a couple kids there with her, and he comes in with a gun. So he asks for some water, and she hands him a mug. He takes off his sweatshirt, wipes down the gun, leaves the shirt and the gun there, drinks some of the water, leaves the, the mug there, and then takes off. And that is the, you know, that is the event that day, and then the investigation kicks off. Uh, police come in, cordon off everything, try to, to find the guy, but he's already, you know, kind of gotten through, and is, uh, and, you know, for, at least for that day, they, uh, they don't find him, they don't know who he is. So later on, we're going to get to, obviously we're talking about a, this is a fingerprint story. So there's, you know, the, for the fingerprint examiners, there's a the exa examiner and the verifier in this case. Initially, the the verifier, uh, the, one, the person that ends up being the verifier in this case, uh, responds to some of the crime scenes to do some processing. 
and uh, in the course of that collects this glass mug. And then the person who eventually is the examiner in this case is the one that processes that mug with uh, superglue fuming and finds uh, two latent prints on it. One of the first things that's done is it's searched through the state APHIS, but uh, no hit is found. So, Glenn, uh, you've seen these latent prints. What's, what's the best way to describe them? Not, not great? <laughs> one of them, I think, is relatively straightforward. And the other one is a little more challenging, but I would agree that both are comparable. I would have said suitable for comparison on both. Although one, depending on which photograph we look at, and we'll get to that a little bit later, if the one photograph is the best representation of it, I, I, I think they're both comparable. What do you think? Yeah, I, I mean, yes, comparable. Some of the photography is, is a, could have been better. Again, this is 97, right? This is on, at least appeared to me to be on uh, the old Polaroid sheet film. Right. Which can have some kind of a blurriness to it uh, to some degree. But overall, not the greatest latents. Um, I mean, we're not, I think we're, we're definitely under 16 points here for both of them. One of them is maybe even closer to 10. But we'll, we'll get into more of that here later, looking at the specifics of latent print. And we do plan on doing a video walkthrough uh, of these latents where we can kind of get into more uh, of that. But I just kind of want to paint the picture for the examiners listening. And uh, the, you know, like I said, it didn't hit when they searched it through APHIS. So this is a thing that I actually wasn't really surprised by. Uh, these, so the, the main first latent is the one that had the error on it. I, I'm really not surprised it didn't hit in APHIS, especially back in 97. Even now, I, I would, I'd be really questionable if, that was, if that's going to hit. It's close to the core. There's a lot of recurve. That's exactly right. Yes, that, limited that, number of minutia. That not hitting is like the not very surprising. The other one maybe, but there's still some ambiguity as to the exact like minutia location. So I could see someone like encoding it slightly off, where it then also wouldn't hit. And again, back into 1997, uh, even in some of the testimony here, you talk about this is the old. You know, blow it up to five times the size, do a tracing, shrink it back down. Like, this is, these are old-style APHIS systems. Yes. So then after they search it through the APHIS system, some of the, uh, the elimination prints were being taken as well. These were people that had potential access uh, to the mug and other evidence in the case. So they go and collect uh, inked fingerprints from elimination sources. These, these elimination prints were collected from Bonnie Lacey, Jackie McEwen, Carl Lacey, and Bryant McEwen, who we'll mention a couple of these folks a little bit later. Uh, there were also multiple cards taken from uh, some of the individuals, and there were multiple records on different dates as well. And it was one of the things that we found about this case was that, and, and the people that had reviewed this case all came to the same conclusion, that things were pretty haphazard. Uh, these things may have been collected, but it wasn't real clear when they eventually made their way into the crime lab for comparison into the fingerprint unit. Uh, there were dates on the elimination cards, and we know when they were taken, but that doesn't necessarily mean that day they were then submitted to the fingerprint lab. I was a little surprised by that, a little shocked and concerned that they could have actually sat around for weeks, months. It's actually unclear in so long 
they sat around before they yeah. ever made it to the fingerprint unit, if ever. And we'll get to the point where they definitely had it a year later for trial, but and it's yeah, it's definitely definitely unclear. There isn't a, a, a clear record as to you know what happened to these, where they ended up, when they became available. And there was just basic lack of documentation in the case yeah. record. All right, so the the police, you know, they're out canvassing the neighborhood, right? So as the days go by, an officer gets shot. You know, everyone's out looking for who did this. And they've got a description, you know, and they've got description from multiple people, right? The officer who was in a fight with him. You got the guy in the window that uh, that got shot at. And then you got Bonnie Lacey, who, you know, was there with him in her house, you know, with her kids there uh, for maybe 10 minutes or so. So as they're going through the neighborhood, uh, there are people that say, well, you should go talk to Stephen Cowens because he sees everything. He knows everybody. He knows everything that goes on in the neighborhood. He might know what's going on. You should go talk to him. He's their huggy bear. So uh, he's, got, <laughs> he, he's, uh, he's got a record of burglary, petty theft. Uh, he's... He's the guy in the neighborhood where if you want a fake Calvin Klein bag or a fake Gucci bag, you can go to him and he sells them off the street. Now, he had an alibi for the time of the shooting, uh, sitting in traffic with a friend on the way to go shopping. But um, so they they interview him and he becomes a you know, really a person of interest uh, in this case. So, again, this was this, the first thing happened on June on May 30th. These uh, elimination prints are collected June 1st or the 3rd. Uh, by June 10th uh, or 12th, depending on kind of where you're looking in the record, the name of Stephen Cowens is first provided to the latent print unit as a possible suspect. And on June 13th, one of the latent prints, uh, we'll talk about latent print 1 and 2, so the first one is ID'd to his left thumb by the, uh, by the examiner, and then, ID'd, and then that ID is verified by the verifier on the 15th. So that's not the only evidence in the case, though. Uh, what's interesting is there is no mention or record in the case file of anything about the second print. We don't know if anybody was compared at this point. Uh, there's no mention of it. There's just no record of what happened to the second. So we don't know if Collins was excluded from the second one or if it was compared to others. Other than simply having searched it in APHIS, it's kind of an unknown until, as you'll hear later, a year later when it's going to trial. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's a, I mean, it's such a problem in the case where, when you, when you don't keep track of what's compared to who and when, you know, it's, it's one of the things that it's, that needs to be documented, right? It's not just about who was identified, when was the identification made? It's all the other comparisons that occur as well. It's just so important to report that out. Right. And, uh, obviously, uh, the agency, Boston Police Department, at that time was not accredited. And even if an agency isn't accredited, my point here being is that doesn't prevent you from proper documentation. And again, sure. the lack of documentation, even this basic chain of custody of where these things were and when they were provided. And even earlier when you said June 10th through 12th, we're not even sure what day Stephen Collins, as a name, was actually provided to the unit because it's unclear. It was provided to a detective one day who was part of the IDENT, but when it actually made it to the examiners is also not clear. There's a couple of days window, which, again, we just 
that this is our point, even through lack of accreditation, these things still could have been documented and should have been documented. So as you mentioned, you know, there are these other bits of evidence. You know, you had all these different witnesses. And so there was a photo lineup that had Cowens in the photo lineup. And Sergeant Gallagher, who was the injured officer, looked at the photos and picked out Cowens. Now, the later investigation finds that his initial conclusion, however, was not definitive and only became certain later. And it seems that Gallagher may have dropped the goatee from his description, conveniently the better match Cowens as well. Uh, Peter, the, the individual in the window who was shot at, and Lacey were shown the same lineup as the officer Gallagher, uh, but they did not identify Cowens. So only the officer had identified Cowens, and there's some questions about procedurally how this occurred. Although this is not generally things that we talk about. We've had Lisa Steele on before. And, um, you know, she mentioned issues with lineups and things like that and has written about this kind of thing. There's been plenty of reform through the Innocence Project and basic changes that have been recommended for how to properly conduct lineups. Not surprisingly, this would not have been a properly conducted lineup back in 1997. Right. So that's the that's the initial you know kind of thing. That's the like the photo lineup, right, that uh, that Gallagher looks at. Again, it's unclear from the documentation that that is publicly available uh, exactly, you know, how certain he was, and and if that changed over time. You know, different reports that you know I read through some of those through those sources I mentioned, you know, suggest uh, that that he may not have been certain at first. I, I don't know. I, I, this is only what I've you know been reading about in the case. It, on July twelfth, so this is now we're, we're skipping ahead. We're month and a half later almost, uh, Cowens is brought in and put into a live lineup where uh, Gallagher IDs him again, but this time also uh, Peter, uh, Benjamin Peter, uh, IDs him as well. But again, Bonnie Lacey does not identify Cowens, even though she's the one that spent the most time with him. Regardless, you've got now two people saying that it's him, one person who's saying it's not, and the one person who's saying it's not probably is the one that got the best look. So, but you also have this fingerprint ID, right? So between the latent ID and two eyewitnesses, uh, you know, going up the chain of command in, in, in Boston PD, case looking pretty good, right? Yes, it's certainly. At this point, sure, it's looking pretty solid. All right, so at this point, uh, Cowens is obviously under arrest, and uh, and the, the case starts working its way through, the, uh, through you know, getting ready for trial. And uh, trial comes back around next summer in uh, June of 1998. And uh, one of the first things happening here in preparation for trial, the verifier goes and takes another set of inked prints from Bonnie Lacey. And two days later on on June 17th, the examiner IDs that second latent print on the mug to the left ring finger of Lacey and then issues a report on that. Somewhere, someone in the PD has had a copy of those uh, inked elimination prints this whole time, but it's only now, right, like literally like a week or so, or just right when trial's about to start, or heck, it could have even actually started already, where they decide to get another copy of her known prints and do another comparison uh, of this second latent print. Right. 
Which begs the question, did they have her print? We know they were taken, but did they have them or not? Were they ever provided to the unit? Did they ever do a comparison? We'll get to that. That is uh, <laughs> the, the, the short answer is yes, they had them. So, but the, that starts raising more questions. But we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. Right. All right, so the trial uh, uh, kicks off, and the examiner and the verifier both testify about the identification to Cowan's. And the ID of the second latent print to Lacey. And then they, they have a court chart for both of these identifications that they show to the jury. And it's the old style, you know, photographic enlargement, the lines and the numbers uh, on, uh, on the sides. Uh, <laughs> like your comments, Glenn, when you first, uh, when you, we, we first pulled this image up, we were talking about it in preparation for this. You, you kind mm. of shook your head and said, you know, known print on the left. <laughs> Drives me crazy. And, and I, see, I see it all the time in these old charts where, yes, the known print on the left. I, and I see sometimes in journal uh, publications, too, where they're showing a charted image and the known on the left. It just drives me bonkers. It's, it's one of those things where it, it was so ingrained in my brain from day one of, of training that the latent goes on the left that it, it is still odd to see it the other way around. Yeah. Um, but uh, still, um, I, I wonder with, when that switch happened where people, or it was just started being just pounded into people, of, you know, put it on the left. Yep. Uh, so here's the thing, though. In that court presentation, the known print of Bonnie Lacey that was used in that presentation was from the inked card that was collected in 97 in that initial set. Right, they didn't use the new set of fingerprint cards that they had just collected a couple weeks prior. It was the it was from the original card, so and they didn't go collect, or at least there's no record of them collecting any other elimination prints from anyone else. That you know, a second in a second pass, right. just uh, just Bonnie Lacey's. So it's almost like they were you know getting ready, reviewing everything. Was like, oh hey, look, this is an ID. Well, we need a reason why to say it's an ID now. Like, why? Uh, otherwise, it's, people are going to ask, well, "Why didn't you ID this a year ago?" Uh, so we'll we'll just go get another copy of the known prints and then say, "All right, you know, due to getting another copy of the known prints, now we've made this ID." And that's the way the report is written. They don't really come out and say specifically which one they use in the comparison, but. You know, there's no way to know for sure if that's kind of the mindset, but that kind of that story kind of makes sense as to why they got another copy of the of those known prints, and um, and in order to write the report, you know. Well, that's just it. I don't. I don't know, and I, <laughs> and and I don't know that anyone will know. It doesn't. It doesn't no. make any sense. I, I could imagine a version of this where it turned out that yes, they were collected, but. For whatever reason, they didn't know that they had a set of these prints or, uh, you know, it was collected by someone but didn't, you know, make it into the file folder. I mean, based on the chaos that I've read about in these reports and the the preservation of evidence and how it was stored and cataloged, uh, any number of potential theories of why, why wasn't, why wasn't it either reported compared found etc why did they need to go back i just don't know i i just i really don't know 
on June 30th, you know, based on that fingerprint ID and the eyewitness testimony, uh, Stephen Cowens is found guilty. And uh, in this documentary I watched, uh, there's a you know, quote from him uh, saying, you know, after hearing all that evidence, so these two eyewitnesses and this uh, latent print ID on the mug in this lady's house, right, that he wouldn't normally have access to, he said, if I was on that jury, I would have convicted me too. Yeah. Hey, since you read the transcripts, do you know if defense called or anybody called uh, Bonnie Lacey, who obviously didn't identify him in the lineup and maintained it both times in the picture and the in-person lineup? Was she called? Right. I don't believe so, but I'm not sure. I don't know for sure. It seems like defense should have called her. I mean, if... Right. And that, that actually was part of his first appeal in 2000, uh, 2001, where uh, he, he basically gets that portion, the home invasion portion of his conviction, overturned because they brought up, hey, you know, the lady that, like, would know if her house got invaded by Stephen Cowens said it wasn't him. So, like, so that conviction got overturned, and his sentence was actually drastically reduced. Hmm. Uh, and as he starts then going to the innocence project to like work on the rest of his, you know, this case, insisting that he's innocent this whole time, they're like, Hey, listen, you know, if, if we get all this tossed and, you know, find all this evidence and they go, then decide to go back and retry you, you know, they might dig up even more stuff and then you might get put back in for longer, like than what you have left. Like this, this is, there's no guarantee that, that uh, you know, all this work is going to to result in you getting out, and he still insisted, "No, I'm innocent. Let's go forward and um, and, and fight this." Because uh, he you know, kept insisting this whole time that this, he didn't do this. This wasn't him that uh, was involved in this the struggle, the shooting, and then you know, going into Bonnie Lacey's house. So, uh, no, no, Glenn, you did read some of the the testimony. You know, some of the things that stood out to me was like. The examiner's talking about 40-hour FBI classes. Yes. And then, you know, going th- and like, as, like, that's the training you get to. And then, you know, going through, like, the description of ridges and the comparison process was real, I don't know, kind of like beginner, seemed like very beginner kind of level. Yes. And then the specific, how many points do you need for an ID? Straight answer, eight. Yeah. Right. Um, very, very blunt. Any other thoughts on all that? It's typical of testimony I've read many, many times and would have been par for the course uh, for many agencies in 1998. And I, I wasn't surprised by anything I read in there. Uh, we have sent you guys to a number of FBI classes. You've had some local you know, basic training or maybe a conference here and there that you've attended. Good to go. And uh, and these, you know, everyone here at Boston PD at the time were, at least my understanding is, these were all sworn officers yes. that had, you know, worked a beat for however long, and then they were currently assigned to the latent print unit. But again, very common for that time period in many different uh, police agencies. All right. So in this time, as you said, I mean, Collins is going through various appeals and such, uh, but at one point gets in contact with the Innocence Project. And there is this, you know, other evidence in the case that really has been looked at that has potential DNA. 
and the Innocence Project agrees to take on the case, and they end up having uh, the mug, the, the ball cap, and the sweatshirt tested for potential DNA. It goes to Cellmark Laboratory, private DNA laboratory, and uh, they do the testing, and the DNA all comes back uh, from potentially the same person. So they find the same profile on all three surfaces, and it is not Cowan's profile, which now you have exonerating evidence, and pretty, pretty good exonerating evidence. Although, right, like all of it matches, but just not him, right? That's right, right. That, exactly. That's basically that's exactly what they were hoping for. The best case scenario, and the you know the evidence being in also two different locations, right? You've got the ball cap in the yard, yeah. you've got the sweatshirt and, and the mug in the house. So I mean, it's it's kind of I would I would I would put a lot of potential weight on this. I, it is interesting that you know judge in the case now grants. Cowan's a new trial and releases him on bail. And the district attorney at the time is still wanting to try Cowan's. He's going to retry Cowan's because, hey, we've got a fingerprint ID that places in there. So uh, whatever, whoever this third person might be, this is just a red herring. We still have the fingerprint ID that places him in Bonnie Lacey's apartment. And the eyewitnesses, right? Oh, right, and the eyewitnesses, yeah. I always well, demote that to almost nothing evidence, but yes, you're, you're totally right. Well, yes, I, I'm, I'm, I completely agree, but I, you know, taking it just from that prosecutor perspective, right, of, of what they think they have, that, um, you know, that, that still weighs a lot. One of, the, one of the saddest parts, there's many, many sad parts uh, of this story, uh, but one of the saddest parts of the story is that while that while they're waiting for the results of these tests uh, in late 2003, uh, Stephen Cowan's mother uh, has uh, having heart issues and is waiting for a heart transplant, and she starts to get worse. You know, this has been a you know, it's been six years now, and it's been very stressful on her. And uh, she has a heart attack and goes into a coma. Stephen asks to go visit his mother in the hospital, and. Uh, the, uh, the basically pr- the prison officials uh, make him choose to either go now to visit her or to go to the funeral if she dies, uh, but he can't go to both. So he chooses to go see her in the hospital. And uh, after he visits for just a few minutes, uh, she dies three days later. You had mentioned the, the, uh, the district attorney you know, vowing to retry uh, Cowan's. So that's on January 21st, 2004. Right then, as soon as this this all comes out, Boston PD, and again, this is we're starting to get into the, you know, give credit where credit's due, reanalyzes the latent prints right then, and uh, this has always been one of my criticisms of the FBI. After you know they hear back from Spain saying that you know, the Spanish National Police don't think that the uh, Mayfield ID is a good ID, you know, they there's no. There's nothing in the documentation showing they went back and reanalyzed their work. Uh, but Boston PD does here in this case. And they find that it's not an ID. They give it to a new examiner in the case. Right. That's, that's exactly. They give important. it to a different examiner. Yeah. Which you're right. In, in the Mayfield case, they don't like give it blindly to some internal examiners at the FBI. You're right. And uh, then they give it to at least two other 
uh, IAI certified examiners in other agencies uh, who also you know confirm that it's not an ID. And then you know, uh, just so then within just this two day period uh, now on January twenty third. The district attorney says, quote, I can conclusively and unequivocally state, Your Honor, that the purported match was a mistake. So just blunt, not, they're not trying to, uh, you know, he, that's not hiding it. That is coming out just basically, I mean, it's only two days from when he said we're going to retry Cowens. Right. Uh, so th- th- that's when he had to, like, that's when all of this had to have been done. The bad ID discovered and then... You know, basically, we're not retrying him. We're done, um, and being really transparent and clear here. And kudos to that district attorney for you know when he found out that new information, you know, acted upon it. And then also that same day, uh, <laughs> the uh, on the January twenty third, uh, Boston calls up Ron Smith and Associates uh, to come take a look and try to figure out what's going on. And again. Can't you know, I, I keep having you know, some good things to say here? Uh, good on them for being right on top of things. And as soon as they see, all right, something is definitely wrong here. You know, let's investigate and find out uh, you know what is actually going on. There's always been some issues ongoing in, in that unit, uh, but you know now that it's that it's you know hit the awareness of some of the you know top people there in the department. Uh, they take some action to resolve it. Yeah. And and for listeners who might be out of the country or just don't know, so in the United States, Ron Smith & Associates is probably one of the largest independent agencies specifically focused on fingerprints and crime scenes and some other disciplines. But Ron Smith, you know, a very famous fingerprint examiner. He was head of the Mississippi Crime Lab. And he'd only been in private business for a couple of years, if I remember correctly. I think he, off the top of my head, maybe retired 2002 or three or, you know, somewhere right around this time to go form Ron Smith and Associates. So his company was still quite new at the time, but was taking on a pretty big task of reviewing this agency. And, of course, some of the findings that come out is going to involve a lot more. Uh, work at Boston Police Department. It, you know he's he's now been been contacted and um, uh, and makes a at least an initial trip down there and in early February. Now on February tenth, uh, two thousand four, uh, another examiner in the unit of Boston PD makes a correct identification of that first latent print, the one that was erroneously identified to Cowan's and correctly identifies it to the left thumb of Bryant McEwen, who was one of the, uh, the individuals where the, uh, those known exemplars were collected way, way back, you know, just within two, four days of the incident occurring. And so the, the true source of that latent print you know, had, had been available for comparison in somewhere in the department, unclear exactly where, since the beginning. And that's one of the ways that this might not have ever happened is if that ID had been made to this uh, set of elimination prints uh, initially before, you know, Cowens was even brought up as a potential suspect. 
let's see, I think the, the next section we're going to talk about here is the, uh, the report, the initial report that Ron Smith issues. Uh, he issues it on March 8th, 2004. And, um, uh, but this is from, you know, work that he's been doing through most of February uh, in, uh, it, you know, taking a look at what's been going on in this case. I, I don't know about you, Glenn, but I, initially, I immediately was like, oh boy, that's, you know, talk about times lining up. I mean, because you know what happens three days later, right? Right. March 11th was the bo- the the bombing in Madrid, Spain. You know, terrible act of terrorism. Yeah. And then just a few days later, March 14th, I believe, uh, the Mayfield report was issued. A day that will live in infamy for fingerprint examiners. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So, um, so the, now now this is kind of some. We're just pulling out some. Um, some lines from uh, the the report that uh, Ron Smith and Associates has issued, and again, if you want to read in more detail, uh, this is uh, online at uh, convictingtheinnocent.com. You can just do a search for uh, Stephen Cowan's uh, on that site, and then at the very bottom is the some uh, some files with the court testimony, and then also this report. So. Um, the so first off, uh, I, I think again this is really important to say, is that uh, in the beginning of that report, uh, you know, Ron writes that Boston PD was exceptionally open with information and very helpful and cooperative, right? Uh, and that that is not always the case with in reviewing any kind of error from any kind of uh, you know group of people. Uh, so that's. You know that's definitely you know uh, good to hear that that was their their reaction to this investigation. Uh, so the the first thing that that Ron notes in his report is that the, the initial ID to Stephen Cowens was an error, but he goes on to say that he had you know, concern beyond just the error in that he was concerned was in the manner that the that erroneous identification was charted for court. So a few things about it that were a bit odd. Uh, so the first thing is that, so again, this is super glue fumed print. So the ridges on the glass mug are white. And uh, most times when you're especially dealing with, dealing with photography and super glue ridges, and you want to make this kind of chart, you look at the negative instead to make the ridges black to match the black ridges on the inked card. Right. Uh, can I point something out too? Now, when yeah, you yeah, and please. I were discussing this case early on, you asked me if I had noticed that in the charting. You said, Glenn, did, did you notice that the, the ridges were white in the photo? Did you notice that before reading this report, working off the images? Or I had, did. Okay. Yeah. I, I um <clears throat> So we we got this information kind of piecemeal from all sorts of different places, right? And uh, you know, for, first some of the first things we saw were based on the um, like the PowerPoint presentations that uh, Hillary Deleuze has given has been given on uh, has given on this uh, this topic, and uh, in that is included the this original court presentation. So I'm looking at that and. And looking at like, where do the lines all go and everything, and it all of a sudden it kind of dawns me. Wait a minute! Like, 
especially I think it was after I was reading the testimony and they said, you know, superglue fuming. And I was like, wait, superglue fuming and go back to the chart and go, all right. So this big smudge down here is white. They didn't reverse it. So all the, like everything is, is uh, the ridges are white now. Why wouldn't you do that? Right. And I don't know if you recall what my answer was, but I, I, what I told you was, actually, I didn't notice that. And then you said, well, I mean, isn't it weird that they, you know, they put a chart with that, yeah. you know, with, with the white ridges. And again, my answer was, well, uh, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, yeah, but not necessarily. And, I, and my reason for that, and this is what we didn't discuss, and the reason why I didn't pick up on it or even find it suspicious, but I understand why other people would, is because a lot of times I actually do sometimes leave the ridges white, in, even in a chart, because, and here's the weird thing, when I chart something, I'm actually charting it for me. And if I can see the white ridges better, then I'm leaving Uh-oh. it white ridges for me. And I recognize that the whole point of a charted exhibit is for the lay people, the jurors, but I know what I can see better. And so uh, when I tend to make it, I'm making it from my, my documentation images anyway, but... I don't always reverse it for, for exactly this reason that sometimes I, I might see the white ridges better, have better contrast. And you'll notice that in my report, sometimes I'll have the white ridges, but it's almost always a color photo. I'll leave it yeah. color with the white ridges because you get just such a, a better range of contrast with different colors as opposed to leaving it white ridges and then making it black and white grayscale. That I almost never do. If it, you'll find that generally if I leave it white ridges, it'll be also a color photo. But it's why it didn't really register to me because I don't find that that surprising if if it will help me see it better. I used to do that quite a bit as well, where I wouldn't I wouldn't really take it to grayscale unless I had to go into APHIS. You know, it's just a, like a requirement uh, of yeah. that process. And you know, a huge chunk of the comparisons I was doing were, um, you know superglue dye stained images which are then obviously uh, in color and uh, so with the basic yellow process that I used most of the time uh, you know that was typically green ridges uh, to you know I'd compare the green ridges to the black ridges on the cards yeah uh, so no I, I can I can definitely see that I mean this is again back in the 90s so what I would do for court presentations, would I have different versions, right? I'd go through different slides in PowerPoint showing, all right, here's, here it is in green, and then here it is now in black to make it easier for them to see sure. uh, and, and step through those different things. But, yeah. you know, that, that makes sense. And, and that is a, that's a possibility. Of that's, there is a reason why the, this chart was made with the latent print having white ridges. That's, that's definitely a possibility. So, right. So, but to Ron Smith and Associates, it did seem odd. But what they noticed was not so much that, it, you know, yes, they noted that it, normally you would have black ridges here and have it reversed. But what they noticed was behavior and a pattern. In the second latent print, latent print two, yeah. it had, in fact, been reversed to have black ridges. So they did it in one, but not the other. They, did it in, they didn't do it in the erroneous identification of latent print one, but they had reversed in latent print two. And again... In the report, I think Ron Smith is astute here because he goes, you know, 
it's it, it's certainly suspicious. It's odd. But what we really need to do are look at his other charts from the past and develop a yep. pattern that he always or almost always tends to switch it over to black ridges. And if he didn't do that for this erroneous ID, that's very suspicious because it may be some way to obfuscate or make it more difficult for the layperson to see when he's presenting in the courtroom, which again, intimates the possibility that this examiner maybe knew that this was an erroneous ID that was being charted up for court, sort of discovered before court, and now still going through the charting process, even though this examiner has discovered. That's, that's what I think Ron's trying to get at at the heart here, but the only way to really know that or have some sense of that is to look at the pattern in history of this examiner and the fact that he did it one for one of the IDs, but not the other. But even the report says, you know, we asked for these things, but just in the time frame, we weren't able to find out or, or find other exhibits. We really don't know what his pattern is and whether or not that ever was established or anyone ever did figure that out. You didn't find that in any of the documents or reports that you read, did you? No, I didn't. Yeah. So we just don't know. It's certainly was a red flag that Ron Smith noted and for, you know, appropriate reasons. But it wasn't the only thing that he noted that was odd as well. Yeah. Yeah, this this was interesting. Again, didn't necessarily trigger in my brain the first time I read it. Didn't seem suspicious, but again, it's about patterns. What do you normally do? <laughs> yeah, I didn't notice this either when I was first looking at it. It wasn't until I read Ron's report that it really jumped out at me, the, the, yeah. the difference here. And so on the back of the chart of the erroneous identification, latent print one, he had the examiner had written almost step-by-step description of how um, each one of these ridge counts and how to describe this almost like a script. So he doesn't get lost. And, and again, I, I didn't think anything of the, the first time I, I had heard about that or saw it in the image. I didn't think anything of it. But it was the only one that was on. It wasn't on the other one, on latent print two, the correct identification. But it was on latent print one. Again, the report says, look, we need to establish a pattern here. Let's look at a whole bunch of other cases and charts and see if this ever comes up in any of them. If it doesn't, and it's only in this one, that's some evidence that this, again, examiner may have had some knowledge about this potentially being an erroneous ID that was being taken to court. This description is written on the back. It goes, point number one, all right, and then next line down. Point number two, down from number one and one le- ridge left. Point number three, three ridges left of number two. Point right. number four, two ridges left of number three, et cetera, through, through ten points here. And it's it's just handwritten on a sheet, of, a sheet of paper and then, you know, scotch tape to the back of the, the poster board, wherever uh, the actual, you know, side-by-side uh, enlargement is, uh, is on. And that, that's something I, I've never really seen anything like that before. Right. So like the leave it white ridges I can get, right. I've, I've uh, plenty of examiners that are like, not only do I leave white ridges as white ridges, if it's black ridges, I switch it to white ridges because I prefer comparing with with right ridges. Um, but this, I've I've never seen this type of like script written on the back of a chart. You usually you look at the front of the chart and you just kind of like you point to the points as you go, saying, mm-hmm. "All right, there's this one," and then 
Uh, you, you, you don't even have really planned ahead. You just kind of pick a direction. Like, and from here I go this way, and then like you know count right. out to three, and then which was what Ron said in the report. You wouldn't need that because you would just look at the charting image and yeah. show them. I mean, he he says that exactly in his report. There's no need for this script because you've got the image in front of you. And and if you look at the the trial the trial transcript, it's basically this right, just yes. kind of walking through, you know step-by-step step explaining this uh, this chart. Yes. And that's, and it's then the, again, like the other one, it's now the second latent not having this on the back that really goes, well, wait a minute. And, and again, we don't, I don't think we have a final answer as to if this was, you know, common practice for this examiner to, uh, to do on, on, you know, every time he went to testify, or on certain ones, or or if ever, uh, besides this one, uh, this one instance, right? Because I mean, I could imagine that if it wasn't done on, for example, what turns out to be an elimination print identification—that's what latent print two is, right? To Bonnie Lacey, it's yeah. an elimination print ID. So less probative, so maybe he doesn't do that. That's why I think the pattern, the historical pattern. Is of behavior is what is important here. And Ron was 100% right. He said, you know, figure this out. You got to look at the other cases. We need to see the other charts. Because if he does it for other suspect IDs, then to me, this isn't, this, you know, this, this is not suspicious. But it's all about the pattern. In reviewing the, the second ID to Bonnie Lacey, uh, Ron Smith and Associates finds that to be correct. And but then raises the questions we brought up before of um, why the court chart uses the 1997 print. So why did they go back and get this other another set of knowns in 98? Yes. And then didn't use them. And in fact, the knowns from 98 weren't really high quality in the one region that you would need for this latent print. Yes. It's kind of smudgy there. Yeah. And. um the the testimony and the report kind of imply that they used the new one, but they didn't in the court chart, and there's no record as to why anyone went and got another set of knowns from her. Right. So, uh, more questions. If it's not clear, these knowns, elimination knowns, were taken by fingerprint examiners. Yeah, Glenn, did you look? You, did you look at that sample? Did you work through that comparison? The Bonnie Lacey one. Two? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I I don't know about you, but I I eventually got there, but I had trouble getting started oh. uh, with that one. Um, so I, you know, I'm not sure if it was just you know I was doing a whole bunch of other stuff and doing this research and and uh, but I, it, it it's one of those things where it, since I had trouble getting started, to me that means there's this possibility that it's it's the type of latent that could be just missed, right? Where you have a missed ID uh, on it. Um, we'll we'll work through this one in a video at some point. But sure, there's like a there's like a handshake or an over under that in the known print looks a little different. And I, I kept trying to focus in and find that, and, uh, and then also some facing endings that. Um, there's a couple places where there's facing endings in the knowns. And I, so I, I was kind of back and forth a couple times on which one is it. Uh, and, you know, again, eventually made it through, went to a different target group and it's fine. 
but uh, you're wondering if, you know, mm. maybe in just a kind of a quick look through, hey, we got four or five different sets of knowns, or, or heck, in this case, there's you know potential that there were actually other suspects as well that they got sent in, and just kind of doing all these super quick, you know, maybe that's mm. that it, it it's possible that it was compared and then missed initially. But yeah, I, yeah, I, no I, I get what you're saying. Um, I, I I can't honestly say because I was biased. I mean, frankly, I went right to the number nine finger. I, 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 <laughs> well, I mean, me, yeah, I really, me too. You know, I and, and yeah. So, but yeah, no, I, I. It is sometimes hard to kind of put that bias aside from our perspective, looking you know backwards at all this. But uh, anyway, just just thought I'd mention that that um, yeah, you know, that's that's a possibility. Without that. You know, without a core to kind of zero in on, you're kind of sliding around a little bit until you till to, to, to you get set as to uh, where to start. Yeah, and again, I, I think you're right. Once we do the video of the images and examiners can see the images for themselves, which you know is something that I, I was really thankful for that opportunity that we had a chance to see the images. I was worried going into this that it would just be all reports and testimony and such and we you know wouldn't be able to see the images but i'm very glad that was part of the record and and was helpful in understanding so then uh then the last comparison here um you know ron smith and and associates takes a look at the new id to macuin and agrees that that is a correct id yes all right so uh and and to be clear um macuin uh how, how are you saying it glenn McEwen, come on. McEwen, okay. Sorry, I. <laughs> this, this, uh, this is um, Bryant McEwen. Uh, this is one of the initial uh, temperate records, uh, elimination print records. that's collected at the same time or around the same time that uh, Bonnie Lacey's was collected. Right, day or two after the crime. Yeah, it's not exactly clear who he is, um, but presumably. Uh, someone who lives at the house or has legitimate access to the house. Right. And then legitimate access to the mug that, uh, that his print was on. Right. Uh, it, it's, it's an elimination print that was collected a couple of days after that were part of the case record. But the question is, did they go to the fingerprint unit? And if they did, were these blatant prints ever compared to these elimination sources, McEwen and several other people that we mentioned. That's not clear. Right. Not, and one other little kind of, you know, twist here is that there were three, well, they're, they're not cards. They're like uh, elimination strips. Strips. Right? They're like yeah. strips of paper. And there were, so there were three collected from Bryant uh, McEwen. McEwen. <laughs> I, I I got I've, I've been really good and I've gotten um, uh, Stefan right every time so far today, but uh, uh, McEwen I, I just keep getting wrong. Um, <laughs> anyway, so there's three sets that were collected from him, but one of them is actually mislabeled, and on the back says Bonnie Lacey. Right. Uh, so you, it's clear looking at the ones from Bonnie Lacey that you know those all belong together as one person and and there's this one that gets mislabeled, but so I, you know, it's just, how does that play into all this? Does did that mislabeling have any effect on, on what got compared, what got reported, you know? Right. We don't know. Yeah. We don't know. 
so in that documentary, I was seeing the the family members of um, uh, Stephen Cowan's, uh, you know, were mentioning how what what they had what they've been told, and not entirely sure by who, you know, their lawyers or the uh, or the PD or the prosecutors or you know where they heard this from, but for, it seemed like what they had understood was that this was an issue of known print cards being mislabeled with like the wrong person's name on it. Uh, so maybe this is what they had kind of heard through that story, you know, unclear, uh, but anyway, just another little twist to the story. Right. So, so the ID effectively, I want to say was in the case the whole time, except there's yeah. a question mark. Was it? <laughs> Were, were those exemplars there or not? Presumably, I mean, they were collected, but whether or not they were looked at, and if they were looked at, even even the Brown Smith report says, if they were looked at, then there's actually a second error here. There's a missed identification. Potentially two missed identifications. Two missed identifations, but more importantly, the latent print one, had this been caught at the time, had this been properly compared and identified, the report says it would have prevented the Stephen Collins erroneous identification, which is factually true. So I'd love to know more. Did the initial examiner actually compare it to McEwen and just missed it? Or was it not compared? Did they simply do an APHIS search and that was that and didn't really think to do any comparisons to the elimination prints? Or did they see it Say, oh, it's an ID, but then got the name wrong. Thought it was an ID to Cowan's initially. Yeah, right? I mean, and, I know that was floated around, but there's there's no evidence in no. here that suggests that. Although, I mean, you you and I have both seen that you know latent print one. There are some similarities, right, to to Cowan's. I mean, there there yeah. are some similarities and and the Ron Smith report says there are some similarities there's a number of differences i'm sure we'll go through in, in our own comparison video but yeah. i mean feasibly one can see why it could be potentially confused by someone who's either rushing or maybe not doing a very thorough examination misinterprets certain things whatever one can understand. It's not like they're completely different pattern types. There are some similarities in the pattern. And, and even McEwen, you know, the, 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 the finger that actually ends up identifying, there are some similarities in the pattern and the ridge flow and, and such, just between those two random coincidences. Yeah, it, it's one of those things where you can kind of see it both ways, right? You could see that, yes, there's some, there's some level of, of similarities here, but in what Ron writes in his report, there are there are multiple quote unquote points of identification marked yeah. on the enlargement of the known inked fingerprint that in no way coincide with the same area of the latent fingerprint. Yeah. So it, yes, there's some, but then there's other things that are like this is just way off. You know what what right. was going on here? Right. And again, we know the examiner looked for eight minutiae to make an ID, although my recollection is he had more charted out than that, if I recall correctly. Did he have ten yeah, the, charted? The, the chart has ten, ten lines with numbers, Yeah, but there's actually dots on the image for about 16. Yeah. So my point being here 
is through his loop, you know, he sees eight in his head. And there are four or five that do kind of line up or so, you know, right off the bat. If he counts quickly, gets to eight in his head, and rushes, makes the identification in his head, no documentation at the time, the chart is what comes a year later when attempting to justify the identification he's already reported out. And, you know, I have seen examiners do similar things before where... With correct identifications, right? I mean, they make it on many, you know, on fewer points or on, on other points, but when it comes to later preparation of the court exhibit, they're making a, they're sort of post justifying the decision and maybe even using features yeah. that they initially didn't see or even use in their decision making. It's not that it's wrong, it's just not the features that represented exactly what you used at the time in the examination, which is why contemporaneous documentation is so critical to understanding how the decision is made, especially when there's an error, so that you understand how the error was made. Thankfully, documentation is getting easier to do. Yes. In 97, it was a whole lot more uh, difficult. Absolutely. It's important to to have that documentation to demonstrate what you did like for your, for your own, you know, CYA, your own CYA, you know? Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So this is an initial fairly preliminary report, uh, from Ron Smith and associates, but, uh, you know, he considers five possibilities here after reviewing all of this, uh, this case information. So either one, the uh, both the examiner and the verifier were not competent to do this comparison, or two, the examiner was not competent and the verifier didn't do a proper review. It was just kind of, you know, oh yep, that looks good and signed off on it. Or the number three, the examiner allowed this outside information, you know, the eyewitness testimony or information, the, you know, the hey, the officer that got shot, he says that's the guy. Uh, allowed that to influence his decision, and then the verifier was either not competent to catch that or uh, didn't do a proper review, wasn't careful enough in the review. So I did want to point out, because this is something when I read the report stood out to me, because remember, and I, you know, this is 2004, right? So this is before Mayfield has happened. This is before the community even understands things like blind verification and bias in these issues. I remember very clearly in 2003, 2004, examiners on CLPEX on the website saying, I don't allow myself to be biased. I don't consider any information other than the fingerprints in front of me. I would never allow case information to affect me, etc. And I know the report says, you know, the initial examiner allowed outside information. But that really is 2004 understanding of bias, and not anyone's fault here, not RSNA's fault, but it's not about allowing that case information. It's very possible that he could have known that information, and as we know about bias today, it can be subconscious. It can be yeah. information that was heard, and he, and he has. it's not that it, this is something controllable. This, the, the fallacy here is that bias is a choice, and if you choose to be biased, you're immoral, and et cetera. Now... I mean, who knows? I mean, if you truly do choose to and recognize you made a mistake and these other things, well, then that's that's other that's other behavior that can be addressed. That's bad behavior. But 
the the possibility here is just the examiner was exposed to extraneous case information and it influenced his judgment. And furthermore, the other thing, I mean, when the verifier was reviewing this, there's no talk of blind verification, hardly existed at all at yeah. that time. The verifier could have been biased by knowing the results of the first examiner. And you have mentioned, you know, your opinion that these were marginal and that maybe a more challenging impressions. So we know that that's where the potential of influence can come in. So potentially verification, even if the other examiner had done somewhat of a technical uh, responsibility here, could have been influenced by information from the first examiner. It just our knowledge of bias at that time, it was so incomplete that uh, when, I, when I read this, uh, that I noticed that was kind of missing from the mix is, hmm. uh, you know, an understanding of bias as we know it today and its potential influence. Right. It, it's not the allowing part. It, it's, it's just, it's just there. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, I think, you know, bias has a, has a higher potential when there's, like wiggle room in the interpretation. Yes. And I think that takes us back into the images that we're looking at here. Yes. The ambiguity so do, of the images. Yeah. A lot of ambiguity, a lot of fuzzy shapes, uh, in, in at least the court charts. Um, you know, when we do a, a video on this, you know, we'll, we'll have kind of different versions of these images and, um, and you know, they were, this item was re-photographed later on and with, I, uh, let's see, I think there were upwards of the, like the actual photographs look like with a digital camera, um, you know, may, may have been upwards of, you know, past maybe 4,000 PPI and the, uh, but the, the scan of like, of the actual, um, uh, Polaroid sheet film was was at forty eight hundred. You know, like the, right. the max that that Epson scanner will will allow. So, you know, the, the you can tell that upon review, that was like, all right, let's really max out here the quality of these images, and right. it gets significantly better. But when it's kind of fuzzy, you can kind of interpret and you can interpret it in different ways than you know the way that your bias is leaning you towards. You know, I, I think that's. That's what's another way to, to interpret what may have happened. Yeah, and frankly, by today's standards, this would have been a good case for blind verification, right? One identification to the suspect in the case and the only yep. you know, physical evidence tying them to the case and one identification you know, to, to an elimination source. A good case for a blind verification by today's standards. So the, the fourth option that uh, you know, they considered in this report was you know basically one of the first three you're not competent uh didn't review properly bias and the initial examiner used a poor method in creating the charted enlargement you know even though he used a, a better method for the the second latent uh and we've kind of talked about that of of you know maybe that was a conscious choice of wanting to see white ridges but um you know there's both that uh, that color choice and the notes on the back, you know, they both just seem out of, uh, uh, you know, out of the normal, but we, you know, we don't know that for sure. Uh, and then option five, again, 
some process, some something of that had come previously, uh, not competent, not reviewed properly, uh, combined with, you know, initially as the initial issue, combined with the initial examiner discovering that he had made a mistake on that ID, and either before or during the creation of the chart, and potentially made a deliberate choice to try to to hide that mistake by um, you know how he put that chart together. Right. That's uh, the so that's the most difficult pill to swallow, but yeah. I mean, you know, Ron's gotta consider all possibilities and you know, some of the, the his observations seemed out of the norm, so this is on the table as one of multiple options. Uh, you know, he had you know his opinion at the time with this. Again, this is very much when the first report that came out, but it was you know additional information you know would be needed to uh, to try to hammer out exactly which yeah. one of these possibilities or a different one uh, was was actually what occurred uh, you know, throughout this case in the latent print unit. Right, and. One of the things I think that they were smart about doing, again, to me, it's all about pattern and history, was, you know, in looking at competence, right? So in this time, RSNA reviewed 1,256 cases over a five-year period for this initial examiner and, um, you know, found, you know, IDs in these cases, found that documentation varied quite a bit but was generally non-existent especially when this verifier in this case, in the Cowan's case, was involved, yet documentation was different when there was a different, there was another examiner in the unit who sometimes would get the yeah. cases, and the documentation was increased for that examiner. That, again, that to me is a pattern, that the initial examiner who made the erroneous ID changed the extent of his documentation and effectively the carefulness of his documentation depending on who was reviewing the case. That's the kind of thing that stands out to me as, well, this is very interesting. This is giving me some insight, right, into behavior. Yeah, and then also the when the verifier in this case, you know, when she was working her own cases as the initial examiner, tended to have more documentation uh, than what was, uh, what was done in this case. But uh, he also saw that over time, the level of documentation tended to increase uh, through everyone in the unit. Yes, that's a good point. That's a good observation. Yes, over time, it, they, he had seen a progression and increase of documentation. Yeah, and I, I think in that case review, it's also important that RSNA noticed that when it came to competence, right, uh, that the examiner in this case had made IDs of similar difficulty in the past, and those RSNA didn't find anything wrong with the previous identifications, and some that had difficulty equal to the one in this case. So, sort of suggested that RSNA said, you know, this examiner seems competent based on past reviews that we've looked at. We didn't find any other erroneous IDs and has made other IDs just as difficult as this in this case. So I thought that yeah. was interesting because it spoke to the competence issue. Yeah, where, where you could almost rule out that, that, um, that as one of the possibilities. But, 
uh, at least through that initial review of, of that examiner's cases. Yeah. Oh, and I think, if I remember correctly, too, Arsene pointed out that most of his cases, like 80% of the cases, were APHIS searches where there had been IDs. The bulk uh, of, of the, the IDs. Yes. Yeah, the, yeah, they were mostly from APHIS searches. Yeah. 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 So the bulk of those IDs had been the product of APHIS. And again, we're talking 1990. Eight ninety nine two thousand, you know that that time period of APHIS. So mm, decent, okay APHIS, but presumably would have had some challenging potential close non matches in some of those lists, and still seem to be making correct identifications. Yeah, the 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 other thing that jumped out at me was that the documentation was a little bit higher when there was an ID. Mm-hmm. But there was basically almost no documentation when there wasn't ID an ID in the case. Yes. So essentially, if you got in a case and didn't make any IDs, often he wouldn't even write a report. Right. There was just nothing written about anything in the case if there were no IDs at all. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me for an unaccredited agency at that time. I've I've yeah. run into that before. The report, quote unquote, report might be a statement in a CSI's report saying I submitted them to the lab, uh, they searched them and didn't have it, you know, didn't get a hit. It'll be a one statement sentence in someone else's CSI report. I, 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 I run into that when I review old cases. All right, so you know, after this initial report, uh, the, the examiner and the verifier are placed on admin leave and, uh, and they eventually retire and uh, Ron Smith and Associates continues on with a more in-depth review of the unit overall, uh, giving some tests, both like written knowledge tests and also comparison tests, uh, you know, where the samples are known, either matches or, or, or not matches, to see what the, you know, what the people in this unit are capable of. And the, the internal investigation uh, from Boston PD eventually leads to the latent print unit being shut down. There is a grand jury investigation that begins uh, looking into the examiner and the verifier, but eventually decide that um, that no charges uh, will be brought against uh, either of them, and, and they're both retired. Right. I just want to point one thing out. To my knowledge, I'm, I mean, I'm going through my, my database here in my head, but... I can't think of another time in our history where a similar thing has gone on, where someone has been tasked to come in from the outside and go, all right, we got we to gotta look at everyone's skill here and see how skilled is the entire unit, and are we keeping all these people, or what are we doing here? I, we know that it's happened a number of times since then, but I'm, this may be the first time that I'm, I can think of when this has happened. Because otherwise, it's always been a sing- right singular examiners, but for the first time, they're really looking at the whole unit now, and so RSNA has to come up with yeah. metrics, right? To I mean, well, if I'm being blunt, I mean these metrics may decide quite a bit about someone's career, their position, their their job, and you know, I, I imagine it's a very delicate position to be put in because if you're going to be assessing their their overall competence, and there isn't normal metric for that it's a, it's a difficult position to be put in i'd imagine for either side oh yeah absolutely but i think you're right i think that this kind of let's look at the whole lab 
is well, I think a was appropriate for you know Boston PD to actually to do, right? Uh, and uh, but I also think it was a. Um, I think you're right in that it's kind of the first instance where something like that you know, had gone down. Um, the, well, the the number you know shortly after this, once Mayfield case hits, and you know then it becomes you know such a bigger deal and such changes resulted from that because of yeah. you know the real introspective look that the FBI took at their unit. Uh, you're right. This is still all before that uh, that went down, or or even kind of in the middle of of that going down here a couple months later, right? Where where they start to take that look, and um, I, I mean, obviously changes occurred at Boston PD to to improve their unit and and get them to a, a place where they have the the right staff, the right protocols, the right accreditation. They've got all the stuff that they need to uh, to be a successful unit, and uh, and made significant changes, you know, uh, in the years after this. But I think the FBI look at themselves and the changes they made had a bigger impact for the field overall. Agreed. Uh, I, I totally agree. Yes, I think for the Boston Police Department. This was an important change, as you said, for their success going forward. But I don't know that it had the impact on the field. And certainly didn't – like these reports, I, you know, you, I, I don't know about you, but I read them for the first time, right, 18 years later after this happened. Yeah. So true. I, I was unaware that some of these reports even existed, and you, and you had to dig – quite a bit to find some of these reports, whereas the FBI report was made pretty public, and it's, it's pretty common knowledge some of the changes that happened at the FBI that have now influenced the rest of us. So, yeah, I would totally agree with that, Eric. So, uh, you know, I, again, I kind of mentioned it in passing, but, you know, I want to, to be clear here that Boston PD, uh, their, their latent print unit, their crime lab overall, uh, is accredited under uh, A&AB, and uh, so, you know, they've, you know, that's just one little piece of, of the improvements that they've made after this, but, uh, you know, I think that also really does speak to to moving forward and making the changes to, to really reduce the risk of this type of error happening again uh, in their house. Yeah, and, you know, I'm, I'm sure you know some of the folks there, and... Oh, yeah. One point, Jennifer Hannaford was their supervisor. Jennifer was, you know, great, just a great person. I know brought a lot of energy in trying to make things better there. Focused on this backlog and getting SOPs in place. And you've got, I believe, Rachel Camper there, who is now their uh, director. And um, you and I both know Juan Truta. 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 He's a great guy, and we've we've known some pretty good examiners there over the years. Uh, yeah. After all of this, and it seems like they've got you know the right personnel, the right motivation. Uh, yeah, known known some of those folks for a while now, and and um, anyway, all right. So so we we've 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 gone around the circle here on the latent print. Uh, let's let's come back into uh, to Stephen Cowan's here uh, at the end of the story. 
and uh, and finish off that part of it. Right? Yeah, it, uh, it, it is such a crazy coda. I'm, I'm glad you you remembered to talk about this because it's just it's sad, but it's it's such a it reminds me of the Benaya Dandridge case. But yeah, tell the listeners. Yeah, well, so again, he was released in January of 2004, and and by early February, all the charges were officially dropped, and and he's just completely you know free man. And he later reaches settlements with uh, Boston and Massachusetts for just shy of four million dollars. And um, in the documentary I saw, you know, where they interview him about. Well, this is actually before the settlement even, so he was just you know, trying to figure out you know, what's he going to do with his life now that he's out of uh, prison. And he talked about you know, getting into uh, you know, uh, working at a barber shop, and then I think he mentioned after the settlement uh, actually you know, owning and running a barber shop. Uh, but in, uh, on October 25th, 2007, so geez, what's that, three and a half years after he's released, uh, Stephen Cowens was found murdered in his home, and that crime remains unsolved to this day. It appears that uh, someone broke in, and there was a struggle, and uh, but there are not really any clues to go on, and and uh, there's not really a, a current update as to to where those stand. In doing some internet digging around, you know, there's the news articles that that hit the papers. Back in 2007, and I remember those too at the time. So I'm curious yeah. if it um, if it's going to have the same thing that I remember. I think I remember from a time, but yeah. What did, what did you read? You know, at the time, one of the prevailing theories was you know basically someone it was it was it was big news that he got you know three and a half million dollars, right, uh, or a little you know, more than that even. And uh, so the theory being, well, you know, someone. Swung by, wanted to steal one of his fancy new cars or something, whatever else he had in his new house. Yeah, and that's, uh, that's what I recall. Struggle ensued, and, and then he was killed. But but there's really no way to know, right? Because right. Um, and in looking up, or well, since then, right? Uh, you know, looking around on Google and other newspaper sites, I couldn't find any other mention of that crime, any of the stories about it, really since 2007. So. Uh, it's it's still just an open case uh, uh, in Massachusetts. So yeah, another another one of these stories, like you said, the Benaiah Dandridge case, which just a super sad ending, uh, where there's this happy moment of of uh, of you know being proven innocent, and then and and then the uh, this, this very sad ending. In the interview I saw in that documentary. He was really a remarkable guy. He really struck me as very intelligent, and you know, he he basically put this all on his own shoulders. You know, studying from in prison to uh, figure out what he needed to do to get out, and he he achieved that. And then to have it all taken away like this is just just terrible. A, a very tragic case indeed, and one where a lot of questions are left and i yeah. i still have questions and you know at some point i i like to know if they ever did establish that pattern i mean you know from what you know from the grand jury you know it what i mean all we know is the outcome of the grand jury is they they didn't have a finding that there was you know wrongdoing or malfeasance or whatever on the part of those two examiners 
So maybe they never were able to establish that pattern. I still have questions. I'm sure RSNA probably had some questions too, uh, at least you know in their reports. But yeah, if any listeners hear this and, and know more information and can share either on the record or off the record, we'd like to know more. And if there were other lessons that maybe we missed or are unaware of in this case, you know, we'd like to know. And um, I, I think, Eric, again, you did such a fabulous job bringing all these pieces together. And the listeners have to realize, I know how much time you spent on this. And I know that you've only given them... <laughs> 20% of all the information that you probably learned about this case. Uh, so there's a lot more, but we tried to kind of focus on the major details, the the beats of the story. And like like we said at the outset, the learning moments, right? The, the, the important takeaways about understanding about documentation and, um, you know, the issues with potential bias and these sorts of things that I, I, I think are important in going forward and improving on general practices. And this is a great case that shows the importance of those issues. You know, so recently in some presentations I've given, I, I, I talked about another case called the Marquette Park 4. And this is out of the Chicago area. And after the, you know, some of the... Um, the fingerprint evidence in that case was reviewed and found, and the the four guys that were convicted were found not to match the uh, really critical latent prints. Uh, it was still four years before they finally all got out, right? And it, even I think there were still a couple guys that were in after they identified these, some of these latent prints to the real perpetrators of those murders. So comparing that to Boston, where in two days, they turned around and and got this guy uh, out of prison. And, and I, who knows how long it actually, probably less than that, because it was two days in just in this, the public statements of how quick it changed. That really you know struck me as, as uh, the right way to operate. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, and you mentioned this case in Chicago. We've dealt with um, the CAM case, the C-A-M-M oh, case, geez. right? Remember, this is where... <laughs> You had definitively someone else involved, and yet they continued to charge him and retry, and uh, they just can, can, and still, I mean, still have continued to you know yeah. go after him. It, it, all right, that's the exact opposite of what we saw here. Right, absolutely, and uh, so so that that's one thing that really stood out for me from just these other cases that we've we've brought up, and uh, but you know, going back the 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 documentation. Uh, the accreditation, full training, you know, the investment of an agency in their latent print unit right? Uh, so that they can be successful. Yep. If you're going to do this, do it right. All of these things are, are, are such important lessons to learn from this case. And, uh, uh, and you know, it, this is one of those things where I think I remember reading the, uh, reading the basics of, of this uh, when back when I first started in uh, in '07, and but it really is until now where I I really kind of get have this better understanding of all that went on in this case. Right. Like, I didn't even know until weeks ago that there was a second latent in this case. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. Same. Yeah, or same. I or I didn't even know that the the latent with the error was correctly identified to a different person. Like right. there's just so much that I didn't know about this case until digging into it, and. Um, but you're know, really glad that after being encouraged and you know 
kind of elbowed over the years to you know take another take a deep look into this one that we finally did. Yes, agreed. All right, Glenn, it's been a long episode, but uh, you know, glad to make it through it, and glad to do another you know kind of true crime case study kind of thing. It's been a while since we've done this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and 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 listeners should be on the lookout for. Yes, a, a companion comparison video of the actual images, and can at least see uh, see us interpreting the information. Yeah, we 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 haven't recorded that yet, and we're not going to tonight because it's getting late. But uh, <laughs> but uh, we will we will get on that uh, you know as soon as we can. Uh, anything here to close out with, Glenn? Well, I have some training coming up. I've been been back on the road again. Uh, it's been kind of yeah. fun teaching on the road. And if uh, if listeners are interested, that you know, teach you know three courses through Ron Smith and Associates here on the road. That would be the Advanced ACV class. Uh, next one of that's coming up in May in in the Massachusetts, actually uh, near Martha's Vineyard, and uh, I believe that's east of Boston, off the top of my head. And uh, let's see what else. Um, there is an exclusion class also coming up. Uh, in Florida, that would be in April, and then lastly, the class with Brendan Max, the defense attorney, practical answers for challenging questions in the courtroom, that will be in May in Boise. So next couple of months, be on the road with classes. Go to ronsmithandassociates.com to register today. And if you're interested in uh, uh, my new exclusion class, uh, go and send me an email and uh, that is eric at rayforensics.com. Uh, any questions for Glenn or any questions for uh, either of us about any topics for the show or for this topic in particular, you can email me or Glenn. Glenn's is glenn at eliteforensicservices.com. It, one thing to, to, to kind of go back to just briefly on this uh, Cowan's case is, you know, our knowledge is completely from these documents and these news articles and the, the video that we saw. So uh, there, there's, there's all complete possibility that there's something that we got wrong, um, either because we misread some document or that the document that we're referencing is incorrect. So uh, in addition to what you know, Glenn said about any other information that might be out there, if we got anything wrong, you know, yeah. please let us know so that we can correct the record. All right, so um, then our website, doubleloopodcast.com. Uh, you go there for all the socials and uh, our, our merch store. Uh, the uh, statements that we make are from those of the speaker, not necessarily representative of anyone that we might work for. And uh, I think that's it for today. So thanks all for listening and talk to you guys next time. Bye, everybody. Have a good week.